Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. How are you? Let's be honest about this crazy Pennyworth thing. Let's just think about this for a second. Chris comes up, he puts a pie in my face, handful of water, I'm done. <laughs> Hours worth of work. <laughs> you wanna see your money be used more effectively, get more bang for your buck, right? I'm just throwing that, I can't hear you, I get the microphone seat, so. Uh, we appreciate your participation. I really appreciate Rick's participation today. He brought a Ziploc full of coins, silver, pennies, dollars. He said, where shall I put this? And I looked at it and assessed it, and I said, I'll take my chances. Just put it all in the women's. And uh, we will let the pennies count for them and everything else accumulate a pie for Yvette. So, all right. Mark 15 is where we're going to pick up today. This and then next week wraps up our series through the Gospel of Mark. And then we will lean in as we are nearing Easter. Uh, these passages right here today and, and next Sunday are going to sound a lot like what we celebrate in about a month, right? As we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But in a gospel-centered church, in a church where the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and how that applies to all of us, this is what we talk about every week, right? And this is how we know that we stand secure in our faith. The Exodus, Passover, I want you to get this image of what we're talking about. On the ninth plague, right, there are ten plagues in Exodus. On the ninth plague, darkness falls over the entire land for three straight days. And then it culminates in the death of the firstborn in each household, the firstborn male child or the firstborn of the animals. And as death moves through all the land of Egypt, God uses that as the thing that breaks Pharaoh and, and causes him to send out the Israelites. And the meal that they use to celebrate and commemorate this is Passover. So they would bring a lamb into their home. It takes place over about a week. And then they would slaughter this lamb in the doorway. And you've got to imagine kind of long before the houses like we have, there's just kind of this place that would collect things from going in and out of the house, uh, in and out of the home through the doorway. So it's kind of little divot right below the door. And as they slaughtered that lamb, it would bleed into that, that hole in the doorway. And they would take that, and they would take some branches, and they would take that blood that's below, and they would paint it above, and then they would paint it on the sides, kind of forming, if you would, a cross. And this image would go on, this reminder of death passing over them would be their high feast that they would celebrate each year, this thing that would kind of bring them together in Passover. And it's during Passover, as Jesus completes about three full years of vocational ministry, preaching and teaching the people about the kingdom of heaven and who he is. It's at that point that he sits down to this meal, celebrates this feast with his disciples. And it's at that point where he is betrayed and he is handed off to the Jewish religious leadership who will then take him to the Roman government. And then Jesus will die. So here's a main idea for you today. The gospel requires death. So death began with Adam, 
in the garden and continued throughout all the Old Testament. All of this has been pointing to one single event, Jesus' death on a cross. The symbolism, the imagery, the things that God has been teaching all of Israel, all of the people, even before Israel, Adam, Abraham, Noah, all of them understood that sin results in death. And as God even then sacrifices the first animal to cover Adam and his wife, they understand that there is a death that can take your place, a substitutionary death. So the author of Romans, Paul, will go on, he will write this to the church in Rome. He says, the, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We'll talk about that last line in a minute. But death reigned. They understood sin equals death, that eventually because of sin, my body will die, that there is a spiritual death, that I can be separated from my creator but that there is also a death that can take our place. And so this is the background. This is the understanding that they have. And every year, as they celebrate Passover, they remember darkness falling over the land. They remember that slaughtering of an animal and painting their doors. And just imagine what the Egyptians must have thought in the midst of all of this and the world around them as they celebrated this. Many misunderstood and, and didn't understand what they were doing, but they knew that this is about death passing over them. So Mark 15, starting in verse 1, says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. So it's right here where the religious leadership of Judaism the Sanhedrin, the entire council. They think they've won. They've got Jesus. He's been arrested. He's been handed off even by one of his own disciples. And they're taking him to the Roman authority, to Pontius Pilate, a governor over the area, but had more authority than even the king or the Herod. And he had the ability to execute Jesus, where the Jewish religious leadership, the Jewish authority could not do that. They couldn't oversee that death penalty. Verse 2, and Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus answered him, you have said so. Pilate is an interesting figure in this story. In fact, he is memorialized in, in, the, creed, in the, uh, like the Apostles' Creed that he would, or the Nicene Creed, now almost my mind just went blank, but anyhow, but that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? That Jesus, this, in the creeds, that Jesus suffered in this. And again, other than the stories or the creeds, we wouldn't even know this particular person. But because of that, he's highlighted. And when we read the stories about him, his answers and his questions are fairly interesting. This gospel, being as brief as it is, doesn't cover them all. But his famous question in a different gospel, what is truth? as he is probing into the life of Jesus. And he says, hey, are, are you not the king of the Jews? And what that really means, he doesn't mean like royalty. He's not thinking like Herods, who are kings at this time. Like, aren't you the one they're waiting for? Aren't you the savior promised by scripture? Isn't that who you proclaim to be? And Jesus says, yes. So Pilate's not like divorced from this situation. He's not unaware of who Jesus is. 
He's not unaware of the religious leadership and what they're attempting to do. And he asked this question with that intention. Aren't you the one that's supposed to come and save them? Yes. Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus is silent. His silence kind of conveys acceptance. That they're making these charges, they're lobbing these accusations against him, and he's not defending himself. Just imagine someone is challenging your character and saying, you did this or you didn't do that, and you're just letting it go by. And so his silence is this passive agreement, if you will. And Pilate says, aren't you going to speak up for yourself? Aren't you going to say something? Aren't you going to defend yourself? But it says this, but Pilate was amazed. As Pilate watches Jesus on trial, Pilate, he sees something in Jesus that is different, that is unique, and he wrestles with it. You can see this in each of the accounts of the Gospels. Verse 6, now at the feast, he, meaning Pilate, used to release for them, meaning the Jews, one prisoner for whom they asked. So in the midst of this Jewish festival, Pilate, who's not Jewish, would kind of give them this token person. He would release somebody from custody, kind of in a, a memorial way, reminding them of the release of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. So it says he used to release somebody annually. Verse 7, and from among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, this is not the thing that happened in the insurrection on the Capitol. This is a big one. This is a, this is a revolt, an army trying to overthrow people. And Barabbas was a part of this, and he's committed murder. And Pilate thinks, for sure, if I offer this guy who's a bad guy, for sure, this is not going to be somebody they want, right? Compared to Jesus, who, to me, Pilate's thinking, seems pretty innocuous. Like, he makes some big claims, but he hasn't been a headache for me at all. So let's see, do they want this murderer, or do they want this king of the Jews? Verse 8, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. In other words, release someone. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So the crowd is here. Now remember, this crowd just, just four days ago is the same crowd that is championing Jesus, yelling, Hosanna, praise to him who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, right? And laying down palm branches. They're a part of this crowd who is cheering Jesus on. But how quickly, this, how quickly this attitude changes and turns, and now the crowd's on the other side of the conversation. We can speculate as to why, but likely it's because they had one view of Jesus, one version of how he was to be the king of the Jews, that was through political power, military might, that he was going to come in and displace Rome, and instead, he's handed himself off to the religious leadership. And when accused in front of Roman authority, he doesn't even defend himself. So now they're on the other side of the conversation. Now they're against him. 
Pilate says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, knowing, like, this guy proclaims to be your savior. Do you you want him? But I love his insight that the religious leadership has handed him off out of envy. See, the Jewish religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, see, they've been jealous of Jesus because Jesus holds sway with the people. The people like Jesus. He's performed miracles. He's healed them. He's taught. When he, when he speaks, when he teaches, his authority is unique. It's different. And instead, the Jewish religious leadership just lords authority over them. And so they see Jesus as a threat. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. feels like modern-day politics here a little bit. feels like nothing is new, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Instead of releasing somebody who's not bad for the people, they, re- they, ch- they call for, champion, the release of someone who is clearly a threat to the people, right? And it's because it is politically expedient for them. Barabbas isn't against them. Jesus is. So let's let the bad guy go because that fits my ideology, right? We see that, and again, you know me, I'm critical of the entire system, pretty much, that both sides are corrupted and need work. And this just feels like that political expediency that we see. Doesn't matter what it does to the people, it helps further my agenda, my ideology, my viewpoint, and that's what they're doing here. So they literally call for the release of a bad guy, because it fits their agenda. Verse 12, and it says, And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. So this crowd has quickly changed. And really all that's happened from Hosanna, glory be to he who comes in the name of the Lord, yay, Jesus, to crucify him is Jesus didn't come in a way that they had hoped he would. That he came humbly, that he came quietly, that he proclaimed the things of God and didn't take on the things of man. And so the crowd's tone has changed dramatically. Crucify him now, they shout out. Verse 14, and Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. There's three responses right now to Jesus. There's the crowd who's pivoted, big, made a 180, is shouting for his death instead of for his glory. There's the religious leadership who will pretty much do anything that opposes Jesus. As long as we remove him, they see him as the problem. And then there's a governor named Pontius Pilate who is standing there watching this and in some ways can't figure out, like, how do I get out of this circumstance? Like, I don't see the issue, but I definitely hear the crowd. And I don't care about their religious leadership. They don't impact me. But the crowd is growing, becoming more vocal, becoming more violent. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate makes a choice to satisfy the crowd. Pilate, like much of humanity, caves into the will of the people. 
right? I know that we use the will of the people. There's some positive sense of that. We vote. We, this is the will of what we want. We want this law. We don't want this law or whatever that might be. But oftentimes, the will of the people get it wrong. We are just talking a little bit earlier with some of the elders this morning, and Remember, the will of the people out in the wilderness after the Passover, Acts, into the Exodus, right? They vote, and you get a golden calf. Like, it doesn't always go the way it should, right? But he caves to the will of the people, so he hands them off to be scourged. And we kind of move by this really quickly. Mark's gospel, again, is a, and a very evangelistic gospel. It's very brief. The word immediately is used some 34, something like that, times in a short book. That the movement keeps going. Mark wants to get you to the conclusion, and he wants to call you to a response. And so he talks about the scourging of Jesus, but this is where they would beat Jesus front and back with what they call a cat of nine tails or a flagellum, where it literally would rip the meat and the flesh off of Jesus as they beat him. And a lot of times it was this scourging that killed people, that it, it would just take people's will to live out of them. And we've talked about this. The Romans perfected a way to torture a man and keep him alive so they could torture him more. No one in history has ever really outdone this in, in the sense of being violent and torturous and causing pain. And they're in this kind of this climax of that era. And that's where Jesus let me say this, that's where God chooses to allow his son to die. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, this whole group of Roman soldiers gathered, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down an homage or fake homage to him. So they're mocking Jesus. They put on this royal cloak to pretend like he's majestic. And they beat a crown of thorns onto his head and they bow down and mock Jesus. As if the scourging and beating had not taken enough out of him, now they get together for a little fun. A whole battalion gathers to mock Jesus. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So there's some quick, what's happened in the last 12 hours for Jesus. He was betrayed by a disciple. He was falsely accused by religious leadership. He was falsely condemned to die for nothing other than politics. He's been scourged and beaten to within an inch of his life and mocked and spit on all in a short little time. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So Jesus is now given the crossbar to go carry along with him, this very heavy piece of wood that he would carry. Now on this, again, on a back that's been beaten, and then a cloak put on it, and probably just as, it was starting to stick to the sword, torn off of him. And now he's going to carry this on his back. But the life's been beat out of him. And he's just not able to handle and bear the weight 
of the wood itself. And so they task a guy in the crowd, Simon, to carry the cross for him. Verse 22, and they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh is this drink that kind of functions as a painkiller, as this thing that was kind of a sedative, this thing that would help him. And he declines. He says, no, I just made my disciples a promise that I would not drink again until I could do it again with them. And I'm not trying to make this easier. I'm literally bearing the penalty of the world on me. So they offer him some help, and he declines. He says, no, I have to do it this way. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And so again, after crucifying him, they continue the mocking and taunting. And they kind of rock, paper, scissors their way to his garments and his things right there at the foot of the cross. See, this is where the gospel really kind of reaches its its climax typically for us, its high point in our understanding of it. For me, the high point is really the resurrection. It's really three days away. But it's at this moment where we belong and Jesus does not. That we deserve the mocking. That we deserve the penalty. That we deserve the punishment. That as God is getting ready to turn his back on Jesus and Jesus will bear the full weight of sin and the absence for the first time of the presence of God in his life, we deserve that. Because all have sinned. Because all of us sin. And that sin erodes and eats away and severs the relationship between us and God. And and yet we're born under this sin. We inherit this sin. And then we contribute to this sin. And all of us come in and we add to the sin in the world. And we slowly and surely pull the world further away from God. Whether it's in those little things that we do that nobody knows about that we think doesn't cause any damage or the big things or whatever. We continue to separate humanity and God as we heap sin upon sin. But Jesus came to fix that. That God in his promise from the beginning of time, from the beginning of humanity, from the beginning of that, God had always promised that Jesus would come. We referenced Adam earlier. So Adam sins in the garden. He and his wife sin in the garden. And as God comes to them and curses them, he also proclaims the gospel over them. As he says, the seed, singular, of the woman will crush Satan's head, even though Satan will bruise, quote, his heel. One man. And then God takes them outside the garden and skins an animal to cover their sin. He has to strip them of their efforts, their leaves they've sewn together to cover their shame. He strips them of their efforts and he covers them. And there's no way to get the skin off an animal unless you kill it. And so God offers a sacrifice pointing forward to Christ to come. And then we see throughout the years, we see all this take place, even in the Passover lamb. Here's how you get death, the Passover you and not affect you. 
is you slaughter a lamb, an innocent lamb, and you paint that innocent lamb's blood on your door. No, they didn't see the cross. They saw the bottom, the top, and the sides. We know. We see the symbolism. Fast forward to John the Baptist as he's out calling the people to repentance. And Jesus arrives. And John stops what he's doing and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. That would conjure up all that imagery from Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That forever death will pass over us. But not just then, but now. That the death incurred by sin, that the, the brokenness and, and the pain and the curse that, that is now, that is today, is taken away because Jesus bridges the gap. And so Jesus lives the sinless life that you and I are called to live, but fail. In fact, not just fail, but choose to fail. And I don't mean just back then. I mean, like, give me a little time today, right? Like it doesn't, won't take long. And I'll choose my own way and my own selfishness and try and pretend I don't know what God's saying and, and sin. And you will. But Jesus gives his perfect life on a cross for hours. So it's at this moment, it's at that worst point, it's the peak for the pain and the penalty and the punishment. Well, I sound like a Southern Baptist, pain, penalty, punishment. Wow. <laughs> Alliteration. All right. So it's at that peak right there that we see the high point of the cross as the high point of the gospel because we know that's where we belong. As the Romans mock, we know it's us. As the nails pierce, we know it should be us. So it's at that point when we know that something, something amazing, hanging literally between God and man, between heaven and earth, is our mediator in Christ. That we couldn't be there because we're not sinless. We're not a perfect sacrifice. We're just, we'd just be paying our debt. And so there Jesus hangs and is crucified. And he does so literally hanging between us and our creator as a way to be reconciled to our creator. And so there is Jesus offering us the life that comes in him. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So this inscription that would hang above a criminal. You committed murder and you were crucified for it. It'd say murderer. If you did something else, it'd say this. What does it say over Jesus' head? King of the Jews. Because that's all Pilate's got. He claimed to be their savior, and they turned on him. They didn't have a crime for him. He didn't commit a crime. Pilate knows that. Pilate runs out like, what do I put there? I think Pilate also is like, this will irritate him. Right? Like, this will, this will get the Jewish leadership. Right? We're going to put the king of the Jews. Just to irritate them a little bit, because they put me in this predicament. Now, I don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. But I think that's what Pilate's doing. Because he didn't want to be in this moment. Right? Like, hey, I don't find anything you did wrong. Won't you defend yourself? Please defend yourself. That way I can, like, choose. Crowd, how about I give you this really bad guy? No. Wow, Jesus, really? That's what you want. So he hangs this inscription, the king of the Jews. 
this ironic writing that Jesus is the hope of the world. He actually gets it right, and everybody else gets it wrong. He is the hope of the world. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And yes, he's hanging there dying on a cross. See, the confusion around Jesus exists, around what he's doing and who he is and, and why. And it's easy to look back in retro. Okay, let me say, it's not easy. It's easier to look back with 2,000 years in a completed Bible and understanding where the New Testament tells us what the Old Testament means and the Old Testament's foreshadowing all of this and put together this cohesive story. It's easier. Still hard, still takes work, but it's easier to understand where we are in the story. But the people on the ground, the people alive, even Pilate himself, don't understand the story. I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And so he ironically puts the truth, the hope, in an inscription above Jesus' head. Verse 27, and when they crucified him, and with him, excuse me, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Most of you have a footnote here, and know verse 28. Verse 28 says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, I'd rather have a footnote than have the translators choose. Fair? I'd rather have them footnote this thing and say, hey, the oldest transcripts that we have don't have this verse, and then put it down in the footnotes. And that way, at least they're handing it off to us as clean and as true and as honest as they can, because they're translators, they're not authors. Because God has already written this. But it talks about the fulfillment of Scripture. And just up to this point, just in what we talked about today, Right in the last 12 hours, there's so many biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled. The betrayal by a disciple. Jesus being silent before Pilate. Simon carrying his cross, dividing his garments, casting lots. is in the Psalms. Jesus being crucified between criminals. All of this written about by God ahead of time through the prophets so that we can see what God was doing. But all of this, it forces us to ask a question. Right? It forces us to ask the question, well, how do you respond to all of this? Like, what do you believe about Jesus? Because if literally hundreds, if not thousands of years of promise and prophecy, written details, are coming to truth and fruition in this Jesus, and if Jesus did die on the cross, if he's the Son of God, if he's the promise of God, if he is the Savior and he does this, and if next week's story is true, he raises back from the dead, then this can't just be something we do on Sunday mornings for 90 minutes. This must be something that reshapes our lives. Because this can't be true like another history book we read is true and just leave it alone like it's a story. But if God actually entered into our story, into our world, into our flesh, and gave his life for us and rose from the grave to give us life, that needs to change things. That's not just a Sunday morning thing. That's a every day, every hour, every minute thing that we need to get on board like, okay, bigger than anything else. So the question has to be, well, how do we respond to that? Verse 29, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. 
So we'll put this on the screen, the crowd. If you, by the way, if you've, got our, if you've downloaded our app inside the notes, all these things are written down for you. It says, they have all heard what Jesus has said and done, but they don't believe in him. Belief would require them to change, and they're comfortable in how they are. So to believe in him requires change. And the crowd is unwilling, and so they taunt. They know what he said. They know what he's done. Many in this crowd probably championed him just four days ago. But now they have to see him as something different, and they're unwilling to. Verse 31, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him one to another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, that means the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So here's a note for you. The religious response, they mock Jesus, but offer belief if he will do one more miracle. They've seen plenty, but they aren't willing to let go of their power and authority to follow Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the healings. They've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead or stand a little dead girl up to life. They've seen it. They've heard him teach. They know what he says he is because they're telling him, you say you're the promise of God. You say you're the Christ. You say you're the king of Israel. It's written above your head. If so, do one more miracle. Maybe that resonates with some of us. Like, I'll give Jesus my life, or I'll give this part of my life to Jesus, if one more thing. Just one more, God. Just show me one more. In other words, you've shown me plenty, but I'm unwilling. And so the religious elite, they tell him, well, just one more thing. It's conditional. Do we see ourselves in the response of the people? Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is in the middle of, obviously, what would be sunny. And this draws our minds back to the Exodus, the ninth, uh, the ninth plague, where in Exodus 10, it says, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land for three days. The days leading up to the Passover were just shrouded in darkness all day, every day. And now in the middle of what should have been a sunny day, what should have been lit up, God causes darkness. And it's not just miraculous. It's an image we should understand, the darkness of the world that would take their creator and their savior and turn on him and kill him. It should be an image that should evoke the emotion that God is going through right now, the darkness over this moment, the suffering of his son. It should, under, it should cause that darkness inside of us, understanding it's my sin that caused that. It's our sin that causes that. That there was no other way because of who we are, because of what we've done, that was required. This darkness for three hours midday reminds us of the depth of pain in this moment. Verse 34 says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a little bit of artistic license taken in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. This is that mo moment. There's this kind of 
added artistic moment where you see a teardrop fall from heaven and this long drop as it hits the earth. This is the moment where the separation between Jesus and the Father takes place. That the weight of sin is put on Jesus. And that because of that, that there is this momentary separation in God himself. That Jesus will experience the suffering of the removal of our sin. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, calls this the great exchange that we're on that cross, we exchange our filth and our sin and our brokenness for Christ's holiness, his purity, and his righteousness. That there is an exchange made. And because of that, we receive the presence of God because he endured God separating himself for a moment. In Romans 5, we read this verse here. It says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. It's that last line, a type of the one who was to come. See, Adam is the one who gave us the inheritance of sin. Because of Adam's sin, we inherit sin and we sin. And because of that collective sin, we pass that heritage of sin on to the next generation. See, he's also a type of Christ to come. Because in Christ, we receive righteousness. That in Christ, we can hand off that lineage, that heritage of sin, and then we can take up a lineage, a DNA, a heritage, a spiritual DNA, if you will, of righteousness. And yes, it's slow, and no, it isn't perfect, and yes, even though we get that, we still fall short. But as Adam is our federal head, our, our leadership that gives us sin, Jesus, he is the one that gives us righteousness and salvation and a connection to our Father who created us. Verse 25, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Again, they mistake it. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down and continue to mock and misunderstand who Jesus is. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus cries out, and exhales. It's like that exhale in the garden when God is exhaling life into Adam. Except life is now leaving our creator, Jesus, on a cross. But it's at this moment, verse 38, it says this, And the curtain of the temple was torn from, in two from top to bottom. This temple, this place, where throughout all of the Old Testament, from the Exodus on forward, where they had a tabernacle, which was a mobile tent, a mobile church, to a temple, their permanent temple, that they would keep behind there, behind the outer courts, and, beside the, and behind the insides, and behind the place where people could worship, back behind a thick veil, was where they, the presence of God kind of remained. They, he was with them, but separate. And it's at this moment where God, from the top to bottom, tears that veil and says, the separation between me and humanity is no longer here. That now, because of Christ accomplishing the penalty promised long ago, the things that have been shadows that lead up to this, the sacrifices, the, all these things, the Passover lambs, all of this, because it's all completed now in Christ, sin is atoned for, and my presence can be among the people for real, among the people. 
Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. One guy gets it. A Roman soldier, a spectator, might have been a mocker, might have drove the nails, might have been a part of the beating and scourging of Jesus, we don't know. But right there in that moment, as he watches all of this take place, he says, truly, that was the Son of God. Can you, can you just imagine the, wow, we epically failed in this moment. But he's changed by it. We need to be transformed by it. I'll put this on the screen. So who is Jesus? If Jesus is truly the Son of God, who died as God's sacrifice to rescue us from death, and I could capitalize D there, like eternal death, forever death, our whole lives should completely change and focus on following him. That our lives must become about that. That nothing in this world can take that place. That there is nothing, not a, not a house, not a family, not an income, not a job, not a sport, not a hobby, not a anything. Nothing can come inside of that and break that relationship. That's what got us here in the first place, was choosing something of this world, something I want, something you want, that isn't God's best for us. And so if this is true, we can't leave here unchanged. If this is true... Our lives must adjust to this. Everybody in the story wrestles with this question. The religious elite don't want to give up what they have. The crowd wants it to look different. Pilate doesn't want to be involved in this at all, but capitulates. And a Roman soldier says, that was God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and entered into our story, our life, our skin. You, the creator, became the created. Fully God, yet fully man. A mystery. But also our mediator, literally hanging between God and us on a cross to provide a way back. We have to just admit, if it's true, everything changes. Even more, next week we talk about the resurrection. If it's true, everything changes. Everything about us must be laid down. And we can't say those words, God, without admitting we don't do that. We lay down what is convenient. We lay down what is comfortable. We lay down what we lay down, but there are parts of our lives we just keep a grip on, a hold on. And it's sin. It's sin that lives in us. I pray that you would call us to lay more down today. Whatever it is that inhibits our relationship to you, help us to lay it down. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us, and you loved us enough to give yourself for us. Help us to, in turn, give ourselves for you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.